Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favourite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column Here Here, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. Hello and welcome to Brexit Means, The Guardian's weekly dive, shutting our eyes and holding our noses into the ever murkier and more troubled waters of Brexit. Now, there's a lot of news happening this week, as we speak in fact, including of course votes in the Commons on the EU withdrawal bill that could just conceivably change the whole face of Brexit. But the timing is all a bit awkward, so we're not going to dwell on that too much, because otherwise by the time this podcast goes out, it may already be out of date. Instead, we're going to look at a couple of specific aspects of Brexit, one of which we've talked about a lot before, the other not so much. First, no apologies for returning to the subject of the Irish border. First, because it committed more news last week in that the government published its long-awaited plan for the backstop arrangement, which was pretty instantly rubbished by the EU. And second, of course, because it remains the major stumbling block on the road to Brexit. Secondly, we'll be looking at an aspect of the whole process that we haven't really looked at at all so far. How's the back office coping? From the outside, it looks pretty obvious that nobody in government has very much of a clue what will be going down in Brexit land tomorrow, let alone what things will look like in March 2019 when the UK formally leaves. But what's it actually like in Whitehall? What's the impact on the civil service of this extraordinary ongoing omni-shambles? With me to discuss all this this morning are The Guardian's Brexit correspondent Lisa O'Carroll, who's forgotten more about the Irish border and the problems it poses than most people have ever known, and Joe <laughs> and Joe Owen from the Institute for Government, which, by a stroke of good fortune, has just published two reports, one titled Preparing Brexit, How Ready is Whitehall?, and the other, The Irish Border After Brexit. 
Lisa, let's start with you, if you don't mind. And this whole backstop question, which, of course, was in the news, dominated the news at the at the end of last week. Can you just remind us basically sort of how we got to this point? What is a backstop what arrangement? Is a backstop? And, you know, what, why do we need it? Yeah, we've got to go back to December, um, to that week when uh, Theresa May, if you remember, went to Brussels, full, full of expectation that she would sign off the, the, on the first phase of negotiations, uh, only to be interrupted by Arlene Foster, who said, no, 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 we, we can't allow you to do this. And after a, um, um, a week of negotiations, um, uh, Theresa May did return on, on the Friday of that week and sign off on the first um, round. But in that were key paragraphs, one which guaranteed that if there was no deal which would obviate the need for uh, border checks in Ireland, that there would be a backstop or an insurance policy, as the Irish like to call it, which would mean that the border in Ireland, as it currently stands, would more or less remain intact. That was the backstop and it was in paragraph 49. Paragraph 50 was an additional paragraph that was inserted at the behest of the DUP, which basically guaranteed that there would be no border down the Irish Sea. We arrive, you know, almost six months later on and we have a reversal. So in March, the government uh, was back in Brussels, the EU summit, and it had had expected to produce operational text which would give the legal framework to this guarantee Mm. signed uh, and agreed in December. However, that didn't happen and the can was was kicked down the road and the government finally, finally came out with their um, supposed backstop proposals last week, as you said, almost leading to the resignation of David Davis because of controversial controversy over um, uh, an end date. Mm-hmm. But it pleased the DUP because it was a UK-wide um, customs, temporary customs right, arrangement. Right, yes, well, let's come on to this. So, so the, the basic situation is then that this backstop arrangement is needed in case no alternative arrangement can be agreed yes. in time. And bo- there are two alternative arrangements sort of on the table, both of which have already been dismissed by the EU. No, th- n- no, the, the two alternatives haven't been dismissed. They haven't been created. So option A is the wider deal that we would get at the end yes. of October, November. And option B was the bespoke arrangement for Northern Ireland that Sinn Féin have proposed. So that would, that's, you know, cherry picking. And the, the, the interesting thing is, the EU have more or less said that they will entertain cakeism in relation to Northern Ireland, but they will not entertain it in relation to the UK as a whole. And what the British proposal uh, last week amounted to was indeed cherry picking. And not only did Barnier dismiss it on Friday, but yesterday they released 11 um, pages of slides which were taken took apart mm-hmm. the agreement and basically said, well, the, the, on, at the top level, um, the issue was that it left key questions unanswered, that it didn't include regulatory controls, and this would lead to a hard border. And the regulatory controls are um, things like uh, product safety, quality standards on food, chemicals, and how you would govern a situation where you have a third country saying uh, that it will agree to um, uphold EU standards, but the EU governance structure doesn't exist, that they can't go in, they can't police, they can't go in and inspect farms, for example, or production lines in pharmaceutical companies. Once Brexit happens, the the UK is outside of the EU and the EU has no jurisdiction. Okay, Um, Joe, what's your take on it then? So, you know, let's just sort of drill down a little bit. What what the, uh, the UK proposal is... Is what the UK's proposal is essentially a customs union, right? A UK-wide customs union, um, which then, as you say, Lisa, 
apparently towards the, the very last minutes. If you look at when they first published the document, it was in Microsoft Word, so you could go on last edited. And it was last <laughs> and edited. And see how the changes that were you made. You know, literally minutes before <laughs> it was released. So there was clearly a few last minute bit of tinkering in response to uh, the David Davis uh, and Theresa May conversations that were happening. Um, but in its essence, it says we'll stay in a customs union. And then there's this paragraph around it being time limited. We would discuss what time limited means. Yes, I mean, it's, 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 sort of, it's a bit of a fudge in, in, in the sense that, um, you know, it, it, it sort of tries to set a date without actually setting a date. So it's it's quite sort of woolly drafting that's sort of been drafted around the big issue to get political consensus in the UK, which I think is sort of true of a number of documents that we've seen um, come through. But as, as Lee said, the three big issues, the first is the time limit. But I think the way that was drafted, I think you can there's a sense probably in the EU that there's probably some movement there. It was expects, but the language in the legal text is still until another alternative is there. So it's sort of, it's open for further discussion. The, the big question will be, it doesn't say anything on regulation and it doesn't say anything on supervision and enforcement of the exactly. deal. Exactly. So let, let's just spell that out a little bit more because yeah, this is very clearly a t- an attempt at a customs agreement but of course for there not to be checks on the border yeah. i mean customs checks are only part of the checks on on a border and, you and also ultimately can be done electronically checks. ultimately yeah. can be done yeah. electronically yeah. so customs is a fraction right of what happens at the border there is the question of how do you test that there isn't beef pumped full of hormones how do you test that chicken hasn't been washed in chlorine how do you check toys aren't full of lead all of these regulatory questions which there is no need for in the single market because there's a common rule book that everyone abides by so there's a huge question of what the uk's proposal is on the regulation and then on in terms of the surveillance and the supervision this is basically saying at the moment the ecj tells you off if you do something wrong and at the moment there's the european commission supported by these web of agencies from um, the european chemicals agency european environment agency who basically try and find out if you've done something wrong So you've got the surveillance and then supervision and enforcement. Uh, so the supervision with uh, and surveillance with the bodies in the commission and then the ECJ doing the disputes. What happens in our proposal with those two things? What is our proposal for that web of institutions that need to support it? And I think the UK is clear what is shown with the customs question that it prefers UK wide and the EU proposal that came out earlier in the year was Northern Ireland specific and what they did on those questions was basically the absolute bare minimum that you needed to avoid a border for goods. So the UK would have to stay aligned to EU rules in the goods element of the single market and there would be commission and ECJ enforcement over that. They're saying, and what Barnier dismissed quite quickly is, he said, our backstop is not available UK-wide. So he didn't necessarily say any backstop is not available UK-wide, but he said our backstop, because that would be cherry-picking. That would be single market for goods, so no border, but no freedom of movement. So some of the things that actually might fly. I mean, it's not far off what I think the Labour Party's ideal outcome would be, which would be single market for goods and no free movement possibly. And so they basically said this won't fly. So there's a question of, well, what will fly if the aim is UK wide? Is the UK saying that that is a deal breaker, not having a border down the Irish Sea, in which case the negotiations will have to turn to 
what can be done UK wide? Will it have to be free movement? Will it have to be full single market and full customs? A, a, a lot of red lines to be to be broken, basically. But that, yeah, Lisa, that, I mean, is it a deal breaker? I mean, given the strength or lack of strength of Theresa May's government and her necessity for the you know the fact that she needs the backing of the of the DUP simply to maintain a majority. I mean that is a deal breaker, isn't it? A, a UK wide thing is a is a deal breaker. Well, well, I don't think so. I disagree because um, you know there's interesting mood music coming out of Dublin and Brussels, and I think in a way you could argue that this is partially this is a partial option A that we're looking at, and if option A can cover all the bases, then there is no need for this backstop. But what the EU are looking for is the backstop in writing, a very, very specific it insurance policy. It has to be a legal text, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, and it has to cover all, all the things that are in the protocol, which is mm. several pages long, which also include all the North-South co- cooperation and all the elements of the Good Friday Agreement. But it is interesting that in it, Dublin, I think there is a feeling that they, they're happy that this now won't happen in June that it would become part of the wider deal. They were less happy about that before. And I have heard from other journalists that who, who know better than I and what the thinking is in Brussels, that it's Brussels are taking a much harder line in the backstop than, than Ireland. That's interesting. I mean, what are the consequences if there is no agreement on this backstop, Joe? Because, uh, because that backstop agreement has to be part of the withdrawal agreement, doesn't it? Well, yeah, nothing's agreed until yeah. everything's agreed, right? So this is one of the key strands that's in the withdrawal agreement. There's Ireland there's the deal on citizens' rights. So if this doesn't come through, what does that mean for um, the certainty that we're trying to give to EU citizens here and UK citizens abroad? What happens to the money? That agreement doesn't stand. And then also transition. So all of a sudden you're looking at so, hard so, Brexit so, so no 2019. Agreement, no agreement on the backstop means no withdrawal agreement, which means no transition period, which means crash out in March 2019. I mean, that's the logic of both sides' positions now, right? I mean, whether faced with reality, things may change, you never know. But, uh, you know, from reading it from now, if there's, if they can't reach an agreement on this, they can't reach agreement on the whole withdrawal agreement, and therefore you're looking at no deal 2019. Do you see a solution for it? (laughs) (laughs) How to solve the Irish border, yeah. Um, (laughs) I think... Not, not, not wanting to put you on the spot in any unfair way. The really interesting question is what the UK does when there is pressure on this question around UK-wide and whether it then defaults to having a Northern Ireland-specific mm. protocol, which could end up with a border down the Irish Sea, or whether it allows other red lines to bend in order to try and get a UK-wide backstop. And I think... There's a lot of focus on the UK red lines, but this is also really interesting from the EU's red lines, from their perspective, because two of their big red lines at the moment is Irish border and indivisibility of the four freedoms. And if the UK wants to try and test whether the indivisible are indeed divisible, this Irish border question and the backstop seems to be the point where there's going to be the most pressure. There's just one other interesting thing that emerged in Ireland, and I think people in um, Britain won't be aware of this, that this uh, conversation about a united Ireland, it's a conversation that's being had in Ireland. Mm -hmm. Not a very substantive one, but it was something that didn't exist before the referendum. Absolutely did not exist. Nobody, I think, 
thought there would ever be a united Ireland bar Sinn Féin which which has long long maintained that objective politically but last week there was a poll um, commissioned by the BBC and it showed that 30% of the population of Northern Ireland had changed their mind not about about the referendum but about whether Northern Ireland was best ruled by the UK or ruled in Dublin and put that 28% in it uh, along with the percentage I think it was around 30% also which already thought that they um, were better placed ruled by Dublin was you've got a majority of people who think they do want to break in the union so I think it's really interesting the DUP are very very vocal but they don't have democratic legitimacy in Northern Ireland and I, it's very interesting that Sinn Féin are having a summer party in Westminster this year, <laughs> that they are pressing the flesh over here in a way that they didn't when Gerry Adams was in control. There's a complete change in strategy because they know that they don't have a platform and that they need their voice to be heard um, just as much as the DUPs in, in, in London. All right, well, just before we move on then to this the, this topic of the impact of Brexit on, on Whitehall, a little bit of news just before we began recording this podcast. In fact, Theresa May lost another minister, uh, the Justice Minister Philip Lee. He resigned so that he could oppose the government on one of the key amendments, the Lord's Amendments to the Withdrawal Bill, the one that demands that Parliament should be given a decisive role in contributing or deciding on the final Brexit outcome, the sort of the really meaningful vote. Mr Lee said he wanted to be able to look his children in the eye and say he did his best for them and that the way that Brexit looks set to be delivered at the moment was detrimental to the people we serve. Now, this obviously increases the number of Tory rebels who will will be voting against this amendment, which we're not going to talk about in great detail because it's about to happen. Uh, So that obviously could spell trouble for the government, but more Broadly, Joe, I mean, how how worrying do you think this is for Theresa May? This is really the beginning of crunch time in Parliament. These votes on the EU withdrawal bill, and then shortly after there's going to be the trade bill and the customs bill, where the most substantive amendments around policy at the moment really exist around staying in a customs union. And then you have the summer break and you come back and there is going to be these votes on the deal that gets brought back and then there's the big withdrawal agreement and implementation bill that's coming through and all of these I mean to date the can's really been kicked in parliament and this is really the first signal whether it's kind of crunch time for MPs to work out whether they are or are not going to rebel on relatively big bits of legislation I mean one of the interesting questions on the the meaningful vote which depending on the different drafts, et cetera, et cetera, the Parliament basically takes control of the process. But it's really unclear what Parliament taking control of the process looks like, right? Who is Parliament? Does it go to the exiting the EU committee that's chaired by Hilary Benn? So then does Hilary Ben have a role? I, I mean, I think there's a really interesting question of what actually Parliament taking How you control define Parliament. means. Yeah. Because it's not... I think in in that respect, it's not necessarily a very sensible way to conduct negotiations if you don't have a single point and how do you work this. But it's clearly Parliament saying, you have not consulted us yet. And unless you allow our voices to be heard, we are going to sort of insert ourselves. Uh, and I think this is, you know, the, the, the first big test for that. Yeah, um, I think I think the, the common sense interpretation of what Parliament having a say is um, that a deal... What what that means is that the government cannot do a deal behind closed doors in Brussels and come back and 
um, you know, send the various member states off to get it ratified in Parliament and then agreed in secret. I mean, surely it's got to be the deal has to be published in full. Um, it has to be scrutinised by Parliament in, a, in the same way as legislation would be, I imagine. Maybe not the same process going back and forth to the House of Lords. Um, and then the, every single MP given a vote perhaps not even whipped. Yeah, because you're right, that's the stuff that's kind of been promised already, right? That there will be a proper vote, there will be time to scrutinise what the deal is. The, uh, I, think, I think David Davis has said they would publish an economic impact assessment um, to go along with the vote. So there's been promises of this, but the, yeah, the big question is if MPs say no, and this amendment stands, that therefore Parliament takes control of the process from there on what parliament in control means yeah Yeah, is a something i'm not right well exactly a a question that's that would be very hard to answer but what is sure is that you know the people who will actually have to implement whatever uh, um comes out of that decision will be the civil service and uh, and whitehall joe now the report it was a fascinating report a couple of days ago talking firstly about the fact that I think it's possibly the most striking thing, this this extraordinary sort of atmosphere of secrecy surrounding Brexit in Whitehall, and that is actually hampering the government's ability to actually plan for Brexit. Now, what, what can you give a few examples of what you, what, what you mean by this kind of secrecy, and, and what do you think is, is driving it? Okay, so I think uh, the sort of context is that we, this is a sort of gear change now in Brexit. We've gone from working out positions where you can use a sort of handful of civil servants and ministers finding out what the sort of preferred options are and then sort of planning around what sort of no deal could look like and when things would need to be ready. We're now into sort of full-blown or getting into full-blown negotiation across a load of issues, not just the sort of the handful that were involved in the withdrawal agreement. And we're also now sort of nine months away from potentially having to have no deal stuff in place. And so what we found is that that there had been this culture of extraordinary secrecy, which is largely driven by divisions in the cabinet, right? And not having a clear position on what the UK's preferred option is in a number of scenarios. So there's sort of been, I think, considerable amount of debate around what no deal actually really means. Because a lot of people say, well, a lot of ministers you've heard, or, you know, backbenchers at least say, yeah, but no deal would, you know, we'd get a few deals here on data and something on aviation and it wouldn't be as bad as everyone thinks. The bare bones deal. The bare bones, exactly. And then the other side is, well, you actually have absolutely nothing. And this was that Armageddon scenario that um, Tim Shipman wrote yes, about the in, the, Times, in the Sunday yes, Times. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so there's some disagreement around that. And then there's also disagreement around what our sort of preferred end state is, whether it looks a bit more like a sort of CETA-style Canada free trade agreement or whether it looks a bit more like the single market, but we try and get a few things that soften the blow, maybe around migration, etc., etc. So there's a huge spectrum of options still in play. The Whitehall is still working to no deal next year, no deal in 2020 because we get the transition, but then we don't agree a future relationship and then negotiated outcome, which covers a sort of huge multitude of sins. And so these sort of divisions around what end state means, means that there's reluctance for departments to share information because different ministers are working to slightly different scenarios and they've got their focus on slightly different... They're kind of protective of, the, of their own positions. Exactly. And the, the, the reason for the sort of secrecy that we've been told is, 
we need to protect our negotiating position in Brussels. But Brussels has negotiated our trade deals for us for the last however many years. They know exactly what the UK preference is because the UK sticks its hand up in the European Council and says, no, we really care about this. This needs to change. And actually, some of the areas where the secrecy has expanded to, I mean, one example we were told is around this piece of planning guidance. So this was a document that was sent out by the Cabinet Secretary, Jeremy Hayward. It was signed off by the Prime Minister. It had been worked on by the Department of Exiting the EU. And it said, those three scenarios, the no deal next, the no deal in 2019, the no deal in 2020, and a negotiated outcome, these are the basic planning assumptions that you need to work to when you're pulling together your plans. And now this was distributed to departments, but it had to sit with numbered hard copies, single figures, in permanent secretaries' offices that departments couldn't access. So if you're if you're designing plans that this year alone £1.5 billion has been allocated for, that go down and they go across 20 departments as well as public bodies, the devolved administrations... But the planning guidance is sitting in a single office that you can't easily access. It means you're going to end up with plans that don't really add up. We're at a point now where information flow is absolutely critical. because You can't do anything without it. Exactly. And the way Whitehall works is that, particularly if you're talking about some of the things we said matter for the border, like um, testing for chlorine, soaked mm. chicken and environmental regulation and safety, these sit in arm's length bodies that aren't part of Whitehall. They don't have easy access to the Permanent Secretary's mm. Office. Some of them are based all around the country. And if information's not flowing down to them, mm. you're not getting government expertise flowing back, back up, up to you. So, but, I mean, so that, I mean, that just briefly, that, that, that whole situation sort of spins off into a number of other problems then, doesn't it? So you, it means that, you know, it's almost impossible to make decisions almost impossible to decide on kind of trade-offs that, that you might be able to make. Um, it makes it very difficult to engage with external organisations like the like business lobbies and, and, and what have you. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's really, a, isn't it a picture of almost complete paralysis? I don't think that's fair. I mean, I think a huge amount has been done. I mean, if you look at the thousands and thousands of, I think almost 10,000 new roles have been set up. There's new departments. We got the withdrawal agreement, which is actually pretty impressive given the parliamentary arithmetic and the sort of um, the, the complex detail that sits underneath it. So I think, to be fair, there's been a huge amount that's been done. But I think the point is we are now at this crunch now point. Now reached right? a moment where... And you have to start opening up the process. And some of these you mentioned the trade-offs so some of the trade-offs have been delayed and we're now in a position where we need to be able to send negotiators to the eu who can actually negotiate because the way the uk usually operates in or it's what we were told is how the uk is comfortable operating in brussels and has been for you know a number of years is you kind of have conversations in the margins of meetings and you do your influencing outside of these formal structures and now negotiators find themselves like meters away with microphones mm. in front of them and and, 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 and real give and take exactly yeah. and if you don't have a position that you're able to bend and flex on and every time you want to deviate from the mansion house speech that the prime minister set out you have to reconvene the brexit war cabinet and then there's these big kerfuffles and it gets delayed a week. And you're not going to... I mean, they're ridiculously ambitious timelines for the negotiations. That will be a real challenge. And then the point you made up on external engagement is really important because um, 
you can't leave it to Whitehall and civil servants to know the ins and outs of different bits of regulation and what that means if we stayed aligned and if we didn't and how that would affect business. If you look at the way most big countries do trade agreements, they have these web of sort of mechanisms for engaging business and expert groups and interested NGOs. And we don't have that. And we need a way to bring this expertise into the room when all of a sudden we're being asked to make decisions on specific bits of regulation. Yeah, yeah. Is there, I mean, Joe, final word, is the, I mean, is the civil service up to it? I think so. I mean, I think the, the question is, what does it need to be ready for and when does it need to be ready? And at the moment, neither of those questions have been answered. But something will be ready. I think, you know, there will be stuff in place, but it's not going to be a smooth sailing system if that's what people expect in December 2020. I mean, we haven't decided on what our position is on customs yet and potentially need it in place by December 2020. The last change to a big system on customs took seven years from the point in which it was designed until it needed to be in place and businesses were ready. So I think that ministers basically and this is a ministerial choice, you either have a sort of messy Brexit in 2020 where things are suboptimal and you have workarounds in their manual and it's a bit disruptive, or you try and buy more time because these the practicalities can only move so far. It's, you know, timelines are timelines to a certain extent. Okay, that's about it for this week, I'm afraid. Uh, my thanks to Joe and Lisa for joining me. Please subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers, join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. You can email us also at Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next week then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Max Sanderson. This is Brexit Means, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 